Hello everyone, welcome to episode 11. We're back with another rant episode. Uh, this week is gonna be pretty fun because we have topics that I feel like we're, we're gonna disagree on, so we're gonna have a bit of debating. Um, and Vishva is going to start this one off. Okay, um, yeah, I'm gonna be talking about climate and capitalism and why capitalism although was the economic system that got us into this dire state of climate crisis, is also our only way out of the climate crisis. So this rant is sort of inspired by this meeting that I went to earlier this week of socialist fight back at McGill and Concordia universities. Essentially what they are is a group of socialist activists that are sort of, um, you know, providing educational resources to people about all sorts of things like for example, like this week was socialism and the climate. They provided a socialist perspective and like how like fighting climate change is going to like is only like possible due to with like a revolution and things like that. And they talked about Iran and, and uh, a couple weeks ago and things like that. They're like this massive global um, Marxist organization. And obviously you guys all know me, not very much of a Marxist. Um, however, I thought it was a really interesting meeting. Um, and I'll tell you why. I, I think it provided a perspective that we don't really hear in society either. And it actually forced me to think about why I believe the things I do and why I think that there is a capitalist case for fighting climate change. And only with that counterfactual presented to me by this Marxist group was I able to articulate and, and, and understand the very uh, core tenets of my own beliefs. So let's get right into this rant. Firstly, let's talk about what capitalism is and what capitalism isn't. Capitalism fundamentally is about markets and companies. It recognizes that in order to innovate, in order to be different, there needs to be a motivation. There needs to be basically a selfish motivation to do that. And, and capitalist markets use profit as that motivation. In order for people to... Uh, actually change the way that society operates, change and, and innovate new products, start new companies, etc., etc., there needs to be something in it for them personally. Simply because in my belief, and the belief of many other capitalists, and that something that is backed up by data, humans are inherently selfish creatures. And if they don't see something immediately in it for them or for their family, then they won't do it. It's unfortunate that saving our planet helping our society, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't motivate people to do stuff. You know, we can argue about whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. I think it's somewhat sad. But in the end, the reality is people are selfish and they're motivated by their own self-interest. Capitalism is not about uh, no restriction or, or total individualism with no regard for, for collective well-being, et cetera. At least th that's not what it should be, in my view. For too long, companies have had too much room from governments to destroy the cl climate and emit unreasonable amounts of energy while destroying ecosystems in the process. And let me stress that the very essence of corporations is to make profit. They're not motivated by anything else. This is not the fault of the companies being like these evil bad guys. This is something I agree with the socialists on. This is the fault of our current system that allows those things to happen. Their goal is to make profit for their shareholders, and they're doing that in a way that they are allowed to. 
and the way that they're allowed to do so is by ruining the environment. The solution for us to change this status quo is not to dismiss this powerful profit motivation as being inherently immoral or evil, but to harness this profit motivation and use it to reward a climate action rather than climate destruction. This requires a realignment of the principles and a fundamental reimagination of the role of government in markets. Okay, let me present what I call climate capitalism. This is different than greenwashing, guys. This actually is real climate action that is taken in the name of capitalism. Here are some key tenets of it. Number one, government intervention into markets to encourage green things. So this looks like heavy tax benefits for companies that are either producing green technology that are, you know, creating more sustainably produced solar panels, for example, that are investing in wind and solar and, and nuclear and, and things like that. Companies that are trying to wait, um, find a way for us to move away from fossil fuels and look for a future-proof society. So here's an example. So any company, regardless of whether they're an energy company or not, has some investment. So we can say that the government will give you X dollars off tax for every green energy company your bank or your um, or an individual even is um, investing in and they will increase your tax burden by an additional X dollars or X percent or whatever for every oil company that you're investing in. So this allows even like oil companies which are like definitely like one of the most guilty of environmental destruction. This allows even oil companies not just to go down and take their entire workforce with them but not only does it encourage them to like, first of all, just change what they're doing and pivot in a completely different direction. I mean, this is this has happened before with companies, but it actually ensures that their um, economic interests, such as like their workers and stuff like that, are still protected just because these companies aren't like completely go going under. This is a method that allows these companies to evolve and diversify and even benefit from this. So here's another example of something that I support. And this is something that we do have in Canada, um, although to an extent that I think is far too low and has a lot of really corrupt uh, expenses, but it's a carbon tax. I think this is a really salient way of encouraging green things. I mean, obviously, like heating and things like that should not fall under the burden of carbon tax. Like that shouldn't be on the consumer to like pay carbon for like something that's like a, a provincial or, or, or city based problem. But what it does is it helps eco-friendly companies level out their price differences. This carbon tax needs to be number one salient, which means it's visible to the consumer, and number two, quite substantial so that it makes the relative price of choosing eco-friendly options, which are like slowly moving down in price, getting to close to their, you know, um, energy inefficient counterparts. It, it allows them to, to, to sort of make up for that price differential. Only if this tax is heavy-handed. Given two equal goods, people will always buy the cheaper one. And if we make the cheaper one the greener one, that's ultimately a good for society. It is a privilege of the wealthy to choose sustainable things. But by introducing a heavy-handed carbon tax and changing relative pricing, we can ensure that that is no longer the case. To my critics from the right, I know a carbon tax in the Canadian right is like a big taboo. This is a very heavy-handed government intervention. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. And I believe that this is the kind of government intervention that a lot of people are turned off by. 
But in my opinion, this is the kind of government intervention that we need in order to save our planet. Look, I'm not proposing that we ban things, that we get rid of things, that we remove people's freedom of choice entirely, but rather that we just realign these incentive structures so that the interests of our planet and our own rational self-interests are both within the same sphere, that we're not fighting two opposing battles here, that we're rather aligning our interests with the interests of the collective. I'm not saying that we subsidize unprofitable companies just because they hold a lot of jobs. I'm not proposing that we go full corporate welfare on these companies and, and hype up green energy companies even though they're not doing anything. Neither, like, I, this is very economically conservative thing to do. This is a fully market-based system that I'm sure Milda has a lot of disagreements with, and it encourages entrepreneurship. It's pro-business because of the incentives that we give green energy companies, and it basically ensures that whatever country enacts these policies becomes a hub for these green energy companies. Eventually, that leads to competition between different countries, providing even better incentives for green energy and uh, green manufacturing and things like that. And basically, this encourages a competition over the kind of thing that we want, which is, you know, sustainable technology, instead of a competition over the kinds of things that we don't want, which is like oil and mining and coal and things like that. To my critics from the left, look, I'm not going to say much. Milda, I'm sure you have a lot of criticisms of this entire frame of mind. Um, I won't speak much to this because, you know, Milda, you have a lot to say. But what I will say is this. How do you plan on telling billions of people to cut their consumption and find ways to capture carbon? There is no way for people to do this unless it's within their rational self-interest to do so. The only alternative is doing so by force. The market is one of the most powerful tools that we have as humanity. It is amoral in nature. It can be used for bad, very clearly, but it can also be used for good so long as governments realign the incentives to protect individual freedom and our climate. Thank you. Thank you, Vishva. Uh, I mean, I think you prepaced this because I do have a lot of critiques. I even wrote everything down <laughs> so I would have to have uh, everything on I'm my glad. notes. But yeah, I mean, we can have a discussion about this. Uh, I think the solution that you propose is something that I can also support. I realize how messed up the world is and that change is very slow. And I do see these solutions as being, you know, better than nothing, of course. Uh, but they are already happening and uh, in, in many countries, notably the European Union, notably leading Asian states, as you mentioned, Canada. Of course, it could be happening more extremely, but I kind of want to have an answer which shapes my worldview and kind of gives you another possible solution to the climate crisis. So I think all of this, like the way that we judge your solutions really depend on two things. Firstly, the, the, they depend on our individual values and like how do we see the purpose of life? And secondly, they depend on our political system, our economical system and how politicians can actually change the emission levels. So let me start off with the first kind of segment. I think um, what you said about humans being selfish and stuff, I do believe that a lot of these notions about humans being selfish, about us trying to just survive and seek the best for ourselves, are somewhat socially constructive notions, uh, which have been exacerbated 
by the sort of cutthroat system that capitalism has put us in. I think that the reason why humans are like this and they don't trust others and they just want to seek the best for themselves right now is because they're scared that they will go hungry tomorrow and they are so uncertain about the future. But, and of course, the, the, these kind of notions that are socially constructive in a way take years to change. But I think it is a very important thing if we want to have an impact on the planet. And what you said, like in the end of your rant about, you know, how will we tell a billion people to change their own consumption? I think the people are not the primary agent we should be affecting. I think it is the big corporations we should be targeting first, but I'll talk about that a bit later. But I think generally it's the rich that would need to change the most. Since poor people, yes, as you said, they cannot afford sustainable products, but usually they overall consume way less than people who are of middle class or higher middle class or wealthy people. You know, they buy less clothes, they buy less food. Maybe they even grow their own food, which is a lot more sustainable than buying chicken from the farms where they slaughter millions of animals. Um, so I don't have any issue with telling myself because my values, like I am a very privileged person. I have everything I want in life. I have no issue telling myself to consume less because my values tell me that, yeah, the world is going to die if we don't all individually chip in. And even though I would consider myself somewhat of a materialist because I do love new things and I do love uh, going on vacations and having new clothes, but for the sake of the planet, I would give all of these things up. I would live in a smaller apartment, I would uh, have less clothes. If I knew that we all individually are taking these actions and are having a positive effect on the world. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but uh, just just to address one particular point in in what you said in in that it's the behavior of the will of the wealthy that needs to change. And I think that's obviously self-evidently true for like the super wealthy that are flying around in private jets and burning, you know, heaps and heaps of, of CO2 in the process. However, another portion of our problem is not the super wealthy. It's, it's the, it's the people in between, right? It's not just the super, the ultra poor that are consuming, you know, that, that are, that are consuming, like the cheaper goods it's it's the middle class as well of course we're in affordability crisis um people in general are are sort of looking for the the best deals if you look at everyone that's buying sheen clothing for example you're not going to see wealthy people buying that that's not something that the one percent buys no the one percent is buying their three hundred dollar farm raised sheep like where you can like see the name of the sheep that's like raised the wool for your long underwear or whatever. No, it's it's the average person is is the one that's consuming these incredibly toxic products like like fast fashion and, and things like that, um, which are arguably bigger contributors of of climate change than anything else. And if you look at that, if you look at meat consumption, yeah, it's not the ultra poor that are that are consuming a lot of meat. The rich people, if you look at all the celebrities now, they're going vegan now because for the for the sake of the planet. It's it's the people that are relatively well off, but not well enough off enough 
that they can afford luxurious things that are that make up the majority of people, at least in the West. And I think that that's the kind of behavior that we need to change. It's the people that own small businesses, the people that, you know, work mid-level corporate jobs and, and things like that. These are the people that, in addition to, to, to poorer people, that but but this middle class people both have the problem of consumption in which they consume a lot of stuff but they also have the problem in a of of price where they can't afford to buy you know more sustainable things which is precisely like the case for my point of like of like taxes and stuff like that and everyone of course there's critics that'll say like okay that just makes life more expensive for the average person and now they just can't afford anything but the thing is if these relative prices change then of course the prices of those more sustainable goods and stuff um will also change i also take issue um with the notion that that we are not selfish maybe that's a the you know a critique of of our capitalist system it could be i don't think anyone knows that for sure but what we do know is right now if you're telling me like hey look you can do something for the good of everyone but it's only you that's doing it I'm less likely to do that than you can do something that's good for your family and it's only you that's doing it. Um, you know, I feel like I personally, um, and I think I speak for a lot of people, am basically motivated by the well-being. Of course I care about, you know, everyone in the world, but my principal motivations are for me and the people I care about. Yeah, for sure. I definitely see your points. Uh, I definitely see parts of them being true. And I that's why I do very much support subsidizing sustainable companies. I wish that vegan options would become a lot cheaper here. Um, I think, yeah, on the selfishness, that's the, the problem with the collective responsibility yeah. that, you know, if, if no one's doing it or if you're alone doing it or, or if there's, I don't know, 10 people doing it, not a thousand, then you're just kind of like, why should I do it at all? Uh, so that's why I think the, 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 the most that we should be having, ha having is the cultural shift sort of, yeah. because I mean, my argument's a very not, Adam yeah. Smithy kind of argument in the sense that like everyone working in their own rational self-interest, not for the interest of the collective good ultimately will lead to the collective good. Of course he like used that to advocate for a complete laissez-faire like approach. And I'm advocating for basically the opposite of a laissez-faire approach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I wish that we would be having that cultural shift where we wouldn't feel the need to buy so many clothes from Sheen, not because they're cheap, but just because like, we just don't need more clothes. Yeah, we don't. What is the obsession with uh, material things? What is the obsession with having a job as a life purpose or money as a life purpose or new items as the happiness of life? You know, this is just completely poison to our minds. And I hope that in the future, people will be a lot more smart. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the bare minimum we can ask for. Yeah. All right. And, and the second thing yeah, I, wanted, go ahead, Milda. I wanted to talk about also is the sort of political system and the economic uh, side to things. So I think, well, your solutions, they can work to an extent, but because the whole issue of the climate crisis is capitalism. That's like the root issue, right? 
And since in a lot of countries, even the biggest emitters like the USA, like China, usually governments and companies and like corporations sort of cooperate, sort of go hand in hand in some situations. And that's what keeps the core issue alive. Uh, if in the USA we have huge corporations that are emitters literally funding the conservative party in their election years, or if politicians are shareholders in huge companies, I consider that a huge problem because there is a huge bias there, what kind of policies they're going to implement. If China's national companies, are, which are also huge emitters, uh, you know, polluting the planet, what kind of interest does the Chinese government have to change? Uh, I agree 1000% so with everything that you just said. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and that's why I think these are firstly the issues we should be tackling. And what I would propose instead of the taxes and subsidies, I mean, if I could, if, if uh, people would, in a democracy would vote for these things as just a bigger cultural shift and economic system shift. I don't think we should be focusing on the increase of our economy, we would rather degrowth and building less buildings, you know, making use of old buildings, I don't know, retraining people, just kind of having an economy that is not focused on the growth, but rather using the resources that are finite and that we have. And I would also very much focus on the redistribution of wealth, because I think that a lot of the problems that we have in capitalism and the affordability crisis comes from the huge wealth gap that we have right now. Yeah, um, I mean, those are those are two issues that will just completely take us. Uh, we can talk for hours about those. So we'll save those for a next po uh, our next uh, podcast. Maybe not our next one, but a future one. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk about uh, degrowth and redistribution. Okay, enough about what I'm saying. What are you talking about today? Yeah, so my rant today is going to be a bit scattered and all over the place. Uh, I got the inspiration for this rant by talking to conservatives, as you might not believe, on campus, who we were talking about our political beliefs and a lot of the times people say, you know, oh, I'm a conservative or oh, I'm a capitalist, but I'm also progressive. And I sort of started thinking, what does progressive really mean? And why is it even a thing? So <laughs> in my rant today, I want to talk about why I hate some of the terms that we commonly use in our political lingo and a possible, a few possible ways I could critique them or replace them with something else. Okay, so I think progressiveness in general is, you know, talking about a progressive social policy, something that is modern, something that pushes for social change and progress. And a lot of the times, I guess, when we think about progressiveness, at least when I think about progressiveness, I think of, I don't know, people supporting LGBT rights, people supporting the freedom for anyone to express themselves however they want to, uh, people supporting pronouns, and just the liberation of people in general. That is progressiveness to me, I guess. And so whenever I hear someone say that they're a progressive, I sort of think, well, why is it even a thing that we can be progressive? Because a lot of these things that I just mentioned, I mean, having the right to marry someone that you love, 
or having the right to visit someone in the hospital after they have been in an accident, even if you're not married, because that's not allowed in many countries. Having the right to put on high heels and not be like assaulted in the street when you're a man or call yourself by pronouns that are not of your biological sex. All of these issues, I think that are human rights issues and issues of individual freedom, issues that are simply moral and humanly. These are not political questions, but we have somehow made them to be political questions by putting them under the umbrella called progressiveness. And so I think when you give people the choice to either be progressive or not be progressive or be like conservative or something, or just be neutral, you sort of give people the choice to not support human rights and you normalize that and you don't really keep these people accountable. And that's how we restrict the progress that we have socially. And also that's how we hurt minorities in our societies. So a common critique that I hear about progressiveness is that, look, progressiveness is just too radical. It's like about having neo pronouns and now that is just crazy, like, what do you mean? I'll have to call people by some sort of neo-pronouns and I don't like that. Well, I think generally that is not the case. I think neo-pronouns and supporters of them and like advocates for them are a minority of the LGBT movement. I think that the media really likes to sensationalize what's, I guess, uncommon and they really like to sensationalize the minority of certain movements to make them lose support. This is what happened with feminism when, even right now to this day when I talk to men, they believe that feminism is about hating men, uh, wanting the superiority of women, or killing male babies even. To this day, which is not the case, obviously not the case, but uh, the media has sort of persuaded them to believe this. And the LGBT movement is also not about turning kids gay, which is just propaganda, or, you know, having new pronouns for everyone being sort of forced on you. I think that even if a pronoun policy was enacted in states, it would be probably something very moderate and also concerning human rights. It would just be like, hey, support people's pronouns in the workplace or in educational institutions because People have the right to be called what they want to be called. And I really don't think that it's that hard to respect someone, someone's name or by how someone likes to be called, right? So that's why I don't understand this critique coming from conservatives usually. Uh, so that is about progressiveness. Vishwa, if you want, interrupt me at any time also. <laughs> yeah, who are you talking to that thinks feminism is about killing male babies? Like, what the heck? What kind of friends do you have? Not my friends, but like, I have talked to men in, I don't know, acquaintances that there was a trend on TikTok, I believe a year ago or maybe two years ago, where women were, I guess, joking about literally aborting like male babies and it's really effed up i know but that was a thing <laughs> yeah that's news to me so well maybe you don't use tiktok i'm like yeah i'm so glad i'm not on tiktok <laughs> i love tiktok but that's another topic okay anyway uh moving on to the second 
thing that I really hate about political terms is that we started using using radical terms such as com like communism, fascism, uh, sort of these far uh, and radical political ideologies as just calling them everything. <laughs> like uh, people call everything fascist nowadays, people call everything communist. And I think that it really gives the stigma on especially left-wing ideology. If we start calling everything communism, we will never even consider left-wing ideology to be something that we can actually implement because, well, and it's extremely harmful in my opinion, because we can be considering socialist policies easily and they would really help us. Okay, so, and, and this inspired me because I saw Candace Owens. If you know Candace Owens, uh, <laughs> is like cheers. I follow her on Instagram because I think that she posts a lot of, uh, you know, she really is the representative of US conservatism for me. And I like seeing what she posts so I could like know what's going on in her circles, you know. And so she posted a photo with Kanye West, uh, White Lives Matter. Then the next day she posted about PayPal. I guess PayPal introduced some sort of policy where they could actually like fine users a quite a big amount of money due to misinformation. So she was talking all about this. She was like, look, PayPal's new policy is communism. They've went full communism. They want to find people for having the freedom to speak, like to from having an opinion that is more conservative and stuff. Well, I checked with PayPal. They actually didn't introduce this policy. I think it was either a mistake or they really, really quickly rolled it back when they started getting all of these critiques and their stocks just fell a lot that day. Uh, but that's besides the point. But I think that using these terms is just really populistic. And I know that Candace uh, likes using these kind of terms a lot, but I just really think we should be erasing them from our vocabulary if we're not actually talking about Marx, you know, or not talking about history. Because I think it provides a very bad image of these ideologies. Um, and then the third thing that I wanted to talk about is liberalism. Liberalism is such a broad term for me. And when I meet new people, I feel like everyone has a different view of what liberalism is. For me, liberalism firstly is about economics. It's about free trade. It's about capitalism. It's about globalization. That's the first image and the first like words that pop up in my head when I think about liberalism. But Secondly, of course, it's also some sort of social policy. I guess a lot of people would call liberals social progressives, right? Um, but I also think this is a problem. I think that liberalism cannot be the epitome or like the only choice you have as a voter if you want to be socially progressive because it is not the epitome of liberty and liberation of peoples because it is very much based on capitalism. Um, that's why I really don't like liberal feminists. Liberal feminists don't really have the class consciousness or the knowledge on like the patriarchy and how hierarchies work in the world to push for the liberation of women, like the true liberation of women. A lot of liberal feminists are really obsessed with just pushing for more participation of women in like 
high-ranking positions, for more representation of women in uh, big companies and governments. All of these things, in my opinion, of course, they're better than nothing, but they're very tokenistic. And usually they just put women in places where they're not really accustomed to be, kind of forcing them to be in places which are not friendly for women. This is what happens when liberal feminists push for women to go to the military more, to like even out the patriarchy and the misogyny there. You're just literally putting women in a space filled with males that always say sexist comments. And I talked why this is bad in a few other episodes, uh, so you can check those out. Another thing that liberal feminists does is like are really obsessed with the whole girl boss and female CEO movement. And I literally saw so many TikToks on this. They're like, look, girl, if you just want to be successful in life, uh, just ask for a bigger wage. And when you go to work meetings, make sure to like stand, sit up straight and like spread your legs and talk in a bit of a deeper voice. So men actually take you seriously. And I'm just like, are you are you kidding me? Like you're literally teaching women to act more like men in order for them to succeed. I don't think that this is what we should be pushing for. I think we should be pushing for women to act like themselves and still be taken seriously because they're human beings and they are deserving to be respected. And we should also be changing the opinions of men. We should not be teaching women to change themselves to adapt to the messed up system that we have. So this is how liberalism a lot of the times when you mix social policy with economics and with the capitalistic system that we have can really, really harm social movements and the liberation of peoples. Thank you. Wow, that was a that was a great rant. Like you said, touched on a lot of different issues. I just also want to make something very clear for people that were listening to this podcast. I'm not a fan of Candace Owens. Okay, I don't like Candace Owens. I probably I don't I don't even follow her on Instagram. That's how much I hate Candace Owens. Um, just in case anyone was thinking that Milda was being serious uh, when I was cheering. Um, so Milda, I have uh, a couple things that I'd like to say, and and most of them are related to the to the first part because I don't really have much issues with the with the with the second part of your rant. But the idea that that sort of progressive ideology is basically like an ideology that puts human rights first and when you look at the stated goals of of progressive ideologies like that's like you know removing social barriers uh liberating people etc i completely agree i think that you know it's a, it's an ideology that that is is very centered on on ensuring that you know everyone's rights are respected regardless of of how they identify, how what gender they are, what uh, race they are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the issue that I have, however, is is moving from that sort of fundamental like truth about progressive ideology into sort of something that I consider to be fiction, which is that progressive policies are necessarily the only policies that advance human rights um, and things like that. Like, I hear a lot of people, like, you know, basically say, like, oh, if you don't support free public transportation, you are against human rights. Like, I, I think I think that there's a clear distinction on whether, like, oh, I support that LGBT people have the right to exist as, as you know, as sort of a fundamental view on, like, human rights. Like, that that's really not much of a question right there, as far as I'm concerned, um, versus... 
I think that we should have, like you said, these compelled uh, pronoun laws, which a lot of people may have disagreements with. They may say, look, like, I respect LGBT people, I will use these pronouns, but I don't think that they necessarily should be forced. How do you, how do you see that? Yeah, I think, first, I have a couple of things. Firstly, uh, yeah, I definitely see that progressiveness is such a broad term and can incorporate so many different policies. Uh, the public transport thing, I think, yeah, is definitely, you know, it's not a human right, it's more of an economic policy, um, something that we should definitely consider from both sides. But in general, progressiveness, maybe in the US, maybe in Canada, in like more Western countries, you guys are so used to just respecting these human rights. But in the rest of Europe, in other continents, where it's really not like that, like in Europe, uh, what a lot of politicians use they use progressiveness as some sort of evil and satanic thing mm. because it's really not so common for <laughs> post-USSR states, let's say, to respect human rights and everyone's rights and like gay people's rights especially. Not only that they get harassed, which happens everywhere, I think, but on, like by law, they're not equal to other citizens, which I think is a big problem. And when populists use this progressive term and label to to kind of justify their policies that's why i think it's a problem yeah that's definitely guilty on my part of speaking from a very you know socially progressive country in which the leader of our most conservative party is like a pro-life pro-gay marriage guy that has a gay dad you know uh <laughs> yeah, so yeah. yeah that's true and also i mean like you said, the, the calling everything communist thing is just so silly. Uh, I'm sure actual communists are extremely offended by, like, Marco Rubio calling Joe Biden a communist. It's like... If, <laughs> oh, my. Like, I, I got a feeling that, like, you know, some of the communist guests we've had are just going to be like, what are you saying, bro? Yeah, that's so horrible. Like, I know that probably a lot of Republicans that are more radical and sorry to say this but not very educated called overall like the 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 blue party communism yeah. or socialism which there's is a, like they couldn't be for me like the two parties in america are generally the same it's just like that joe biden is a bit more socially accepting of people's rights and freedoms and progressiveness yeah you know uh there's a famous socialist professor named uh dr richard wolf and and he does a great skit on like these like conservatives calling everything socialism. He's like, basically, according to these people, socialism is when the government does stuff. And when the government does a whole yeah. bunch of stuff, that's what we call communism. <laughs> it's, yeah, I've seen that video. It's the view. It's the, the, the thing is, like, as cringe as it is, it's like a prominent view. Exactly. I think a lot of people don't understand that that video is satire. It's not like him explaining mm -hmm. po po politics. And a lot of people actually take that like for money. I know. know? They're like, they believe that that's true. This is what socialism. Socialism is when Joe Biden cancels student debt, guys. That's what <laughs> socialism is. That's all it is. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. I think that about wraps up episode 11. 
Uh, thank you all for listening to our fun little rants. I had a lot of fun uh, this episode. I don't know about you, Milda. Yeah, for sure. Me too. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, follow us everywhere. You know the drill. Um, on Instagram, we're at Wake Up Call Podcast with underscores in between every word. And on TikTok, we're just Wake Up Call Podcast with no underscores, uh, I believe. Uh, we post a lot of exclusive content there, so please um, like and subscribe, as the youth say. See you later.